Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? We have something really cool to talk about today, and that is bees, plants, and the microbiomes they share. This is so much more complex than bee visits flower, picks up bacteria, and takes it elsewhere. And joining us to tell us just how complex and how wild this world is, is Dr. Quinn McFrederick. Along with many of his collaborators, they are blowing the top off of bee microbiome research and really showing how amazing it is as we know it today and just how complex and amazing it could be into the future. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to say podcasts like this don't exist without support. And one of the best ways to do that is to pick up some of our customizable merch over at Teespring. I have links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com, so you don't have to remember that while you're listening. But again, I couldn't be doing the show without support, and purchasing merch is one of the best ways to support it. But that is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this fascinating discussion any longer. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Quinn McFrederick. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Quinn McFrederick, welcome to the podcast. It is so exciting to have you on here. But before we begin, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's a, it's a real honor to be on In Defense of Plants. I'm excited to be here. Um, my, yeah, so I run a lab here at UC Riverside. Um, it's called a melatology lab, and that just means that we study bees in their natural environment, especially the bees that are native to um, to the United States. So we're uh, I do some work with bees in, in other areas, but most of the research happens right here in California. And what sort of got me into this, well, I, I grew up in Central California and Central California is, is home, the Central Valley of California is home to the largest pollination event in the, the largest commercial pollination event uh -huh. in the entire world, which is the almond pollination. So huh. in February, the almond trees bloom late February up until about the middle of March. And there's very few pollinators out at that time. There's very few bees um, that, that are native to California that come out during that time. And so most of the pollination for almond trees happens from honeybees. And those honeybees are brought into the Central Valley. We bring something like a million and a half colonies of honeybees. So wow. like a lot of colonies from all over all over the country come into the central valley of california for that and that's i was surrounded by almonds when i was a kid i had <laughs> almond orchards on three sides of my house and so every february there were just tons of honeybees and like most people i i guess i didn't even realize that honeybees were not part of the natural environment mm. here in california right um that they were brought over by by Europeans when Europeans came to the United States. And so when I started to think about what I wanted to, what kind of research I wanted to do um, for a master's degree, I happened to read a, a, a book by somebody that we were just talking about before we started the interview by Steve Buckman. Yeah. It was called The Forgotten Pollinators. And he wrote this book at least 20 years ago, over 20, maybe 25 years ago. Huh. And it's about all the pollinators besides honeybees. Nice. So all of those, all of our native pollinators. And it got me just so excited. Steve's just a wonderful writer. Um, he's now a friend of mine. So I got to tell him <laughs> several years ago that um, his, his book actually sort of changed my, the, the, the trajectory of my entire career and nice. my life. So that was really fun thing awesome. to be <laughs> to tell Steve, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's how I got into bee research and we now study what, what, what I call symbiosis. So symbiosis kind of writ large, meaning just anything that lives in close association with each other. Um, so we study symbionts of bees. Some of those symbionts are beneficial bacteria. Some of those are things that just kind of hang out and probably don't have much effect on the host, but benefit by being in association with the host or a commensal organism. And some of those are, are pathogens as well. Mm. And the, the way that I got into that was I, I, uh, 
for my for that master's degree that I did, I did kind of regular conservation biology. So mm. looking at bumblebees and San Francisco's parks and trying to figure out like if I were to design a perfect park for bumblebees, what would it look like? And that was really fun research, but it also made me realize that like we actually know quite a bit about what we need to do to protect bees. Sure. We need to provide them. We, we need to stop messing with the earth. Basically. <laughs> yeah, here's some habitat. Go. Here's some habitat. <laughs> Be at peace and do your bee thing, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and then in certain ways, um, in, in certain ways, bee conservation, just like climate change and um some of our other problems that we have are, are it's it's a solvable problem. We know what we need to do, but we don't have the political will mm-hmm. to do those things. Um, and so in the absence of, of that political will, I, which is a great argument to become a policy person sure, right? yeah. to, to do science policy. And I love that there's science policy people out there pushing for these, pushing for these sorts of things. But I also wanted to, you know, still be doing the science itself and right. and not get into policy. And so I decided, well, maybe there's a way that I can help bees without in different ways. Right. And and that's when I started to think about pathogens and and beneficial bacteria. And maybe, you know, maybe there's there's ways that that I can benefit bees that aren't about protecting habitat. And and so that's sort of what what led me to this to this kind of esoteric <laughs> research interest of mine. Yeah, I mean, esoteric, sure, in the right circles, but man, is it important. And I, what I love about your work is, A, you, you kind of blow this idea of symbiosis, like you said, writ large, because I think people hear that term and they instantly go to like this mutualistic, everyone's benefiting sort of thing, but it really does span the spectrum of possible interactions. But also, it really starts to get at how much unknowns still remain. Like, yes, we can provide habitat for these organisms, but... What other things are they interacting with? And in your case, it's often things we just can't see with the naked eye. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very true. And uh, so we do use a lot of DNA sequencing mm. to, you know, sort of make to to at least get an idea of what kind of microbes and and pathogens are out there because many of them are truly, truly invisible. So just uh, last week, I was out collecting flowers. And um, for this, I wasn't doing DNA work. I was doing just some some culturing work, Hmm. but I collect flowers and I put them in a little bit of buffer and I shake them up really, really well to get the microbes off of those flowers. And then you can extract DNA from that wash of those flowers and find out what kind of microbes are present. But what I was doing this week, and I I, I just cultured those things on Friday. So I, I take that wash after I shake those flowers up and I, pl- I put the wash onto a, a, a plate of, of microbial media. We, we're finding all of these bacteria that really, really like fructose. Mm. And so we make a a diet that's very rich in fructose for them. And you put that flower wash on that media. I did this Friday. And then this morning I came in and I checked my plates and I kind of love making (laughs) the invisible visible. Right. I love doing sort of old school microbiology because you can't see any of those microbes on that flower, just like you were saying, but they're there. Mm -hmm. And when you shake them off of those flowers and you put them on the right media, after a few days, they start to show up in these little, in these little colonies because there's now they've one cell has become, you know, millions (laughs) of cells and you can actually start to visualize the bacteria that were present on that flower. And I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I don't get tired of, of doing that old school <laughs> microbiology. Cause it's like, it's still a little bit magical to make yeah. this in thing of a visible thing, you know? So totally. I, I love the DNA sequencing part of it, but, but old school microbiology definitely has its, its, its fun parts as well. Oh, of course. I love it. Yeah. You got to preserve what kind of got you into it in the first place. Right. And, and there's still that, that physical element, like we are these visual creatures, right. And being able to see it, you go, okay, we're onto something here. Let's take the next few steps. And I, I, I just, anytime we could talk like this high tech science where you're really starting to blast apart genomes, try to understand the diversity of organisms out there, which, you know, when you start talking microbes, hyper diverse in a lot of instances, Sometimes you just got to go back to basics. 
Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and if you want to do genomics, like the the you, you can do genomics on environmental samples, right? Where you're sure. just sequencing everything that's in there. But really, the the easiest way to get bacterial genomes is to culture those mm. microbes and then and then extract the DNA from them. And it's very very inexpensive nowadays to sure. get to get to get microbial genomes to get bacterial genomes especially these guys because their genomes aren't really big so it's yeah. it's, it's pretty easy to yeah. to sequence everything that's in them yeah i mean as someone that's read a lot of science over the years and like decades worth of it it's just it's incredible even within my lifetime how cheap that stuff has become and and just the the doors that opens right and so when you think about going after say um you know whatever species of bee you're looking at whatever flowers it's visiting when I think about microbiome, like I just went to a fair, I was touching handrails and there was a, we'll call it a biofilm. I felt real gross. Like I picked some of that up and took it home. Is that part of my microbiome? Like how do you start to even tease apart what is potentially there, let alone what could be interacting with the flower or the bee, that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. And it, it's, so we, we do use a lot of that DNA sequencing and like the, the earliest stuff that we did was just collecting as many bees as we, as we could from as many spots as we could. And we still do some, we, we still do a lot of this work. Um, that's, that's more kind of just exploratory kind of work, like who's present. Sure. Because a lot of, you know, there's 20,000 some species of bees across the world Ooh. and we've explored the microbiome of, maybe 50 of those oh, man. under a hundred of wow. those there's still a lot out there that we don't know anything about and so it's important work just to just to kind of sequence what we can to find out what's out there yeah to to kind of know whether or not that microbe is something that's that might be important for the bee or 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 whether it's something that might just be passing through mm. and maybe doesn't really have much of an association with that bee you really have to start to look at like numerous individuals of one mm. species and preferably across a, a bunch of different places a bunch of different uh, geographical areas and start to ask you know do the same microbes show up again and again and again and and if they do show up again and again and again, then maybe they maybe they really are something important for that bee. And um, one of the things that I've that I've done in when I'm asking those kinds of questions is then try to get more DNA sequence from those microbes to put them into a into a phylogenetic context. You know, to put yeah. them into a, into a tree and see where they fall out. Like, are they? especially if they're microbes that don't have much information out there about them. Like, are they related to microbes that specialize with other bees or are they related to microbes that are found in the soil or to microbes that are found in flowers? Or, you know, when, once you can build a tree and see like who they're most closely related to, then you can start to generate some hypotheses about whether those microbes might be important for the bees or not. And, whether they're part of we call it the core microbiome is sort of the the jargon that, that <laughs> microbiome scientists use but a core microbe might be something that shows up again and again and again and and is therefore probably kind of important for that organism sure sure yeah i mean it makes sense but i i again coming back to basics that exploratory nature of it all you, you couldn't be doing this without the exploratory nature of well how often is it showing up Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to start to build those, to build those questions, to, you know, build the yeah. field by answering those questions first. Cause, yeah. um, and we still don't have a handle on it. Like, like we were just talking about, we still don't have a handle on it for the vast majority of bees. So there's a lot more of that exploratory research to do, but of course we also want to take it further, further than that. And with the ultimate goal of, you know, ultimately, where I'd love to take all of this research at the end of the day is like, can we design like habitat floral mixes, like mm. seed mixes where say somebody is, is restoring a meadow. Well, can we find a seed mix that maximizes 
the transmission and the abundance of these really good microbes and minimizes the spread of these bad guys of the mm. of the pathogenic microbes yet still provides all the nutrition that the bee needs so it's like <laughs> um that's a, a lifetime of work for, very, sure. for a bunch of scientists so yeah. i don't know if i'll see that come to fruition but that's sort of you know that's sort of where we would like to see this kind of research go cool yeah i mean obviously it's it takes a village right and and you can carve out your chunk of it but I also love the fact that, you know, what started as a very, a very bee-focused sort of set of education and career-oriented questions, I mean, this is the mark of a true ecologist. It blows it up, and you realize just how complex our world is and the amount of different things an organism can react with. Now, here's the other part is, you know, microbiomes have gotten a lot of attention from the human perspective in recent years, rightfully so. We are the ones consuming the content. But in what ways, I mean, we've kind of hinted at it with this idea of symbiosis being a spectrum of interactions. Like, why why should we care about a bee's microbiome? I mean, what is it doing or potentially not doing for a bee? Yeah, ah, very good question. Yeah, there's and we have answers for that in in specific bees. Mm. So we don't know the answer for that across like all of sure. all of the bees, <laughs> but for specific bees we do know and there seems to be kind of two major roles that they play and those those are nutrition and defense. Mm. Um, and so let, let's talk about nutrition first because this fascinated me when I first learned this, but we actually, we have ideas and we think we're getting closer to knowing, we think that microbes probably play a pretty big role in this, but up until recently, we didn't really know how bees actually digest pollen. So, you know, the vast majority of bees, almost all bees, nectar and pollen are their, their major sources of food. There's some weirdos out there. We can talk about some of the weirdos because we, we study vulture bees in our lab, which Ooh. are bees that have gone towards eating rotten, decaying carcasses, vertebrate carcasses. So that's the like main, the real weirdo bee. Cool. There's other oil collecting bees and things, but for the most part, they just eat nectar and pollen. And pollen's like the meat, the, mm. the protein source for, for the bees, the main source of, of amino acids. Yet we don't really have a great handle on how bees crack open pollen to get the nutrients that's inside of pollen. They, they can't pierce it. <laughs> and it's too small for them to be able to chew it. Uh. Um, and so we, there's been like various hypotheses, like maybe there's osmotic shock as it moves through the different compartments of the bee's stomach. But we now think that microbes actually play or probably play. I would say it's not a hundred percent certain for all bees, at least in honeybees, it seems very, very important. Hmm. But that microbes play a role in cracking open those pollen grains wow. to allow the bee to access the nutrients that are inside of those pollen grains. So there's this nutritional component and um, there's been really nice work done in honeybees showing that if you have a, a, a healthy gut microbiome, you gain weight as an adult. Adult bees don't really grow, you know, because they kind of, right when they emerge, they're like a set size, Yeah, but they can get heavier or lighter. They can put on more fat or, sure. or less fat. And if you have a healthy microbiome, it helps you put on those, those fat reserves that are really, really good for the bee. And um, one of our collaborators has also shown that if you feed bees um, an increasing portion of sterilized food without microbes in it, that those bees develop much more poorly than mm. bees that have access to the full spectrum of microbes found in their food. So that that seem that suggests to us that that microbes are important for bees outside of honeybees as well for their right. for their nutritional needs. Wow. Um, so food <laughs> not a not a big surprise, right? Right. Um, our microbes are are also important for for our ability to to digest food and to to have a healthy gut, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then the the defense aspect seems to be the other the other thing that's that's really really important, and that defense can 
happen in a couple of different ways. I think the most important way is defense against parasites and, and pathogens. Um, so a lot of parasites get into a bee via the gut. Mm. And um, so if you have a gut microbiome, that gut microbiome can help sort of provide defense against those parasites and pathogens before they make their way uh, across the uh, the gut to get into the the rest of the bee's body or they can just inhibit its growth so they mm. they don't establish very well inside of the inside of the gut and um so there's good evidence of that in in honeybees we've worked on that in in bumblebees there's very good evidence of the gut microbiome protecting bumblebees from huh. from pathogens um and some of it's some of it's really kind of kind of simple so um we another lab showed that you have to if you're a bumblebee and you have a healthy gut microbiome that you're protected from this um parasite that's it it's a trypanosomatid parasite it's called so Ooh. we get trypanosomes um that cause like sleeping sickness oh um, and Chagas disease. So those are those are trypanosome parasites of people. And bees have their own trypanosomatid parasites. They're related to these human trypanosomes, but very, very specific to bees. Huh. They get in their gut and kind of hang out and feed on the food that's meant for the bee. Huh. So they don't make the bee seriously, seriously sick, but they weaken the bee. Sure. So they have what, what we call sublethal effects on the bee. And so we knew that the gut microbiome was important for, for inhibiting these parasites, but we didn't know how. Um, it, but we knew that one of the major players in the bee gut microbiome is th this bacteria that's in the, the family Lactobacillaceae, so lactobacillus. Oh, yeah. Um, which are they're famous they're famous bacteria because they're of course they're in yogurt um so if you look on your yogurt carton and you see l kci or l bulgaricus <laughs> the l stands for lactobacillus nice um, and we use them to acidify our food so all of our fermented foods are acidified by these bacteria and they actually appear to acidify the bee gut huh. as well and that's how they inhibit the growth of this of this um, of this gut parasite of this trypanosomatic gut parasite. They actually just kind of pickle the parasite by <laughs> making lactic acid, and, oh, wow. and, that, and that sort of sucks all of the liquid out of that gut parasite, and and, and winds up inhibiting its ability to to um, to grow. So it, it it keeps the infection at bay. So Dang. so that that's a major that's that's another major role that that these um that the gut microbiota play for bees i love that i mean to think again you're culturing these bacteria you're you're taking those cultures and running their dna you're getting the sequences which give you an idea of what's there and you're really uncovering this like fractal universe that we live in of these dramas that are playing out you know we see them on our nature documentaries big screen big animals but here they are Often, you know, sight unseen most of the time, and and all of that comes from again this these fundamental aspects of doing science. That is so cool that you're able to uncover that much, and then to be able to tell these stories because without the stories, boy, that's hard to elucidate. <laughs> I love the way that that you articulate that that there there's these interesting little wars going on inside of a bee's gut or inside of a, a bee nest underground that you would never know about until you you start you really start to look in 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 these places <laughs> it's just so fascinating that like some of these microbes can be you know not not intentionally sure maybe natural selection form this but you know lactobacilli have been making lactic lactic acid for gajillions of years right. Right? It's part of what they yeah. do so it's probably not intentional but they got co-opted into this association with bees and and provide this benefit this benefit to the bee that just so happens to help keep this bad guy at bay and so there's these just these fascinating little wars yeah. going going on that we wouldn't even know about 
So I, I love that. I love, I love the way you articulated that. <laughs> Nature, the drama, let me tell you. <laughs> but Red in tooth and claw yes. <laughs> or red in sidereophore and, and cilia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a book in there or at least a shirt somewhere we could fund some research so we'll talk after but you know from from the other side of it you like these bees are picking these up from somewhere right whether it's their neighbors or their environment and you know i can't help but bring it back to the plants i mean what role are the plants playing in this drama you mentioned it at the beginning is there are some present in the flowers. And when I start thinking about flowers, I start thinking about exudates, nectar, uh, you know, floral chemistry, all of these different things plants are doing that must influence the, the sort of microbial community the bees are experiencing in any given day. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it, this is such a, a, a great question because these are the things that, I, that really drive me to, <laughs> to do this research because it's, it is so, there's so many complicated little factors going on. But the things that we have found out that we, that we really know happen is, um, you know, we think of as bee biologists, we think of flowers as places where bees go to pick up nectar and pollen to get food, to do their grocery shopping. Right, right. Right. Um, but just like the, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, holding the handrail and the, <laughs> the biofilm on the handrail. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we go to a grocery store and we have those little wipes to right. wipe off our grocery cart. <laughs> um, <laughs> bees don't get those little wipes and their grocery stores are flowers. And so they are exposed to all of the microbes that other pollinators have left behind mm. when they visit flowers. So, so we now know that, that flowers are not just sources of food, but they're also hubs of transmission. Mm. And they're hubs of transmission for both the good guys and the bad guys. So um, a long time ago in the 90s, somebody did a study showing that these same trypanosomatid parasites, the, the name of the parasite of bumblebees is Crythidia bombi. And a, a Swiss group in the 90s showed that flowers are sort of hubs of transmission for this Crythidia bombi. So we've known that for a long time, but kind of fascinatingly, nobody really followed up on that study hmm. in the in the 90s in, until just you know five, 10 years ago. It's, oh, wow. it, that field kind of sat dormant. Huh. And then we started to realize that. Hey, you know, these, these bacteria that the first hints that we got were when we started to sequence the wild bee microbiome and we started to find bacteria to place them in that phylogenetic context. And we started to see like, Hey, these things are either like really distantly related to everything else, or they're really closely related to things that we find on flowers. Huh. And so then we started to dig deeper into the flowers themselves. And we started finding that these bacteria, these which we think are beneficial, like these lactobacillus bacteria, that these bacteria actually do occur on flowers. Like we can, in one of our studies, we, we isolated again, that old-fashioned microbiology, just taking flowers and growing bacteria off of it, and then sequencing the entire genome of those flower isolates, but doing the same thing with bees and getting bacteria out of bees and sequencing their entire genomes. And sometimes the genomes were a little bit different, but we could also find like basically the exact same strain of bacteria wow. on flowers and in bees. Huh. So that really, really convinced us that, yeah, flowers are hubs of transmission for these beneficial bacteria, not just for the bad guys. Oh, that's good. So, <laughs> so there is, and that brings up all of those complicated dynamics that you mentioned, like how do floral secondary compounds, you know, flowers are full of, 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 um, of these chemicals that are used to attract pollinators, but they also have these chemicals that are used to deter herbivores. Mm. On top of that, you can add on like human influence. Like if you if you find flowers in an area where there's um, lots of heavy metals because there's been mining that's occurred, or there's lots of um, pesticides, oh, wow. or there's lots of um, of uh, antibiotics, for example, because it's downstream from a wastewater treatment site. Sure. 
all of those things can work their way from a from the soil into a plant and wind up in nectar and pollen. And if there's microbes growing in that nectar and pollen, which there absolutely is, sure. we know that for sure. And we know that pollinators pick up those microbes. All of those chemicals can influence those microbial communities and in, inside the, those flowers, or at least we think they can. That's actually a an active line of research that we have ongoing mm. in the in the lab right now. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating yeah. how floral chemistry sort of plays out to influence all of all of these um transmission dynamics and and what that means for the communities of microbes that wind up in bees. I think are I think these are like really, really cool, yeah. really fascinating questions. Yeah, and I would imagine like the amount of investigation you could do on one question when you think of the community dynamics possible, especially when you start getting into diverse areas. I mean, it can probably be as varied as the plants and the bees that they're on, because Man, I mean, and then you add humans, the ultimate confounding factor in any model, right? It just, it gets, it's a lot, but it's also really, if you're curious, fodder for a lifetime and then some. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these questions are going to keep us busy <laughs> for, for a, a long time. And um, I have a student who's actively just this summer, we did a ton of collections a, like downstream of these wastewater treatment plants mm. and upstream of the wastewater treatment plants are <laughs> so just collecting flowers, collecting soils, collecting bees to see. Um, so we, we have a lot of work to do with these samples. We have the samples in the freezer now, but we have to see how, how much of the, those pollutants like antibiotics or, yeah. um, what we call contaminants of emerging concern, these sorts of chemicals that we either put on our bodies for healthcare or we put into our bodies, um, like even caffeine or, or <laughs> methamphetamines or um, antibiotics, they pass through our bodies and our bodies don't change these chemicals, right? So the, the chemicals wind up in our wastewater and our wastewater treatment plants get rid of the bacteria that's in the the sewage, but they don't get rid of these of these chemicals, and so all of that effluent from the wastewater treatment plant is is full of all these chemicals. And so if so, the the question that we're trying to answer there is like, do we find bacteria in communities downstream of these wastewater treatment plants? that are different from the bacteria upstream of the wastewater treatment plants. Like, wow. are there more bacteria that are resistant to these chemicals that we find in, huh. in wastewater treatment effluent downstream of the plants? Sure, sure. And and it really becomes obvious then when you start to frame it that way, just how collaborative this by its very nature has to be because, you know, I even start to think of these questions of some plants hyperaccumulate certain things more than others. And like within the community context, what are they accumulating? What aren't they? And then how does that affect the background of whatever is going on? Totally, totally, Ooh. totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a lot of people have shown like there's a, a town here in California called Copperopolis, um, which is a, it's, it's a ghost town, but it was a copper mine. Yeah. So that's why it's called Copperopolis. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of famous in, in evolutionary biology because there's these plants, um, monkey flowers that, that grow on the soils there that are hyper accumulators of copper. And we've, we've, we have studied, we, we've done a little bit of work with copper. We've done more work with cadmium and with selenium as well. So these wow. are all sort of metal and metalloids that plants are really good at hyper accumulating that wind up in nectar and pollen and then get into bees. So it's, you know, wow. just that fact was like a, a, a somebody's research. Um, that was a PhD dissertation, yeah. actually, kind of showing that selenium can get can move through plants and wind up in nectar and pollen that bees feed on, and that that can actually hurt the bees. And so then we started to build off of that work by asking, like, okay, that selenium gets into the bees' gut. Well, what does that do to the bee microbiome, to the gut microbiome, and yeah. Can that be a good thing or a bad thing? And does the gut microbiome have any role in helping protect the bee from these sorts of from these sorts of of toxins? 
And it does appear like it, it doesn't save the bee. The bee still gets sick if you give it, if if you give it, um, if you give it selenium, for example, that's the the metalloid that we did the most work with. Mm-hmm. But the gut microbiome protects the bee, it keeps the bee alive for a few more days. It keeps it a little bit more healthy than a bee that doesn't have any sort of gut microbiome. And we think the mechanism is the gut microbes actually sort of can uptake. that heavy metal from their surrounding environment. They can sequester it. They have pumps in their genome. So again, we got these hints from their, from the genomes of the bacteria. Oh, here's a pump. You know, you get these long lists of (laughs) genes inside a bacteria's genome. And if you see like selenium pump over and over again (laughs) in these lists, like, Oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So then maybe you you design an experiment to see if they can uptake this selenium to see if they're pumping it in instead of pumping it out. And lo and behold, that's what was happening. So we think that's the mechanism by which these bacteria protect their hosts. That is fascinating. And, you know, here's, for better or for worse, an experiment we have wrought on the landscape. And it begs the question of sort of the rate at which these communities, the microbial communities can evolve to deal with what's going on. And then, you know, the the bees gut or body, it's its own selective pressures. Right. And so it's just, you wonder, like we throw a lot of unique things at the world. How quickly can adaptation happen? And are some of these things you're finding unique to the situations we have created? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, I, we don't know the answers to all of those questions, of course, but, um, but I would, I think that you're, you're absolutely right. And the, the, the reason that I think that is um, what's called the mega plate experiment. So this is an experiment that, that a microbiologist did where they um, put E. coli onto a gigantic culture plate that had increasing amounts of antibiotics. So like the outsides of it, no antibiotics and then enough to kill them. 10 times that amount, 100 times that amount, 1,000 times that amount. And these were, there were no antibiotic resistance genes in these E. coli at all. Right. So they had to they had to get novel mutations to allow them to deal with these antibiotics. And they were able to acquire those mutations and move to the center of this mega plate where it's like a thousand times the amount of antibiotics that would kill them at the beginning of the experiment. And I, I might I might be getting the numbers off a little bit because sure. I'm doing this from memory, but right, I think right. it was like seven days or 11 oh days God. or something like that, that they acquired all of these novel mutations to allow them to deal with a thousand times the amount of antibiotics that could kill them. So, so, so frightening. Yeah. I mean, fascinating also, but yeah, terrifying because it's like, it's not even a lifetime, man. That is, (laughs) you got a week, that's a paycheck. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So your bacteria can evolve. I mean, these are bacteria growing on plates. So they're growing, you know, in the absence of, of, a lot of interactions that they're going to have in nature, but that just highlights how fast natural selection can cause, can drive evolution in these microbes. They have short generation times. Um, they can have pretty high mutation rates. Um, and also microbes can swap DNA around and, and that's how yeah. most antibiotic resistance occurs, right? There's little extra pieces of genomic material, these little circular plasmids that bacteria can swap around. And so, yeah, things can evolve very, very quickly. So I, I wouldn't more directly in line to, to, to answer your question about, about bees and, and humans influence on microbial evolution in, in bee associated microbiomes. Uh, a group that that studies honeybee microbiomes showed that in the United States, where we use antibiotics prophylactically, we <laughs> we um we give honeybees antibiotics to keep these foul brood diseases, these bacterial diseases at bay. 
before they even show up. Because if you if you get this disease in your honeybee colony, you basically have to burn your colony. Ooh, there's yeah. there's no cure, and the bacteria is going to stay in that colony and spread to other colonies. So beekeepers have to just burn their colonies once they get this this Dang. foul brood disease so nowadays this happened about five years ago you you actually have to get a, a prescription for antibiotics now hmm. but before like five or so years ago you could just buy antibiotics and give it to your bees and so that's what most bee, beekeepers in the united states did in europe they couldn't do that they wouldn't just sell antibiotics to beekeepers and the Moran lab, Nancy Moran, this this um, honeybee gut microbiome researcher, showed that in the United States, there's much higher levels of antibiotic resistance in the bee gut, the honeybee gut microbiome, than there is in Europe. Presumably, most likely driven by that, um, by beekeepers giving lots and lots of antibiotics to American honeybees and not to European honeybees. So, so yeah, I think, I think the answer has to be yes. Although we, yeah. we haven't tested that in a lot of, in a lot of these associations. Yeah. I think the moral of the story is we're out of the era of we want our cake and we're going to eat it too <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. But this, yep, we have, we oh. have such an influence that we don't even think about on, on oh, these yeah. I mean, Think of the things we're not thinking about, right? <laughs> the next generation of grad students teasing that apart. But, you know, this is by no means a one-way street. You know, it's not just plants giving microbes to bees. It's It's got to go vice versa because, I mean, how else are they exchanging that sort of stuff? So this, this has got to go in the other direction. And the curious question to me, and it's okay if you don't have answers to this, is like, are these any of these microbes showing signs of playing dual functions? Like they do one thing in a bee, another thing in the plant kind of thing? Oh yeah, that would be so, that would be so, so fascinating. And I, so I guess the closest thing that, that, that I know of is that there are, um, there are microbes that, um, that are found in floral nectar, these yeasts, mm-hmm. um, Mechnikovia is the, the, the name of a, 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 yeast that's really specific to to floral um to floral nectaries hmm. but it's also like there's certain bees especially bumblebees that are attracted to mechnicovia hmm. and so there's been several labs rachel vanette's lab at, at uc davis and carlos herrera's lab in spain and Tad Fukami's lab in, at, at Stanford have have worked on this on this yeast an awful awful lot. And Carlos Herrera did this really fascinating study. What we've learned is is that the the yeast can help attract pollinators. Um, you know, bumblebees actually prefer flowers that have these yeasts. Mm present in them. So it can influence who visits these, these flowers if that microbe is present. Um, and it can increase pollination. Carlos Herrera's group showed that it can increase pollinator visitation, but it can also alter the um, the temperature of the flower Ooh. of all things nice. and have detrimental effects on the on seed set huh. in the flower. So it sort of increases pollination or at least pollinator visitation, but it can have a detrimental impact via this sort of like heating. And I think there might also be some chemistry involved at the the same time as well. Um, That sort of negatively impacts seed set. So it's definitely, the bumblebees are attracted to it. So we think that there's like some nutritional benefits to eating this yeast. Um, And it attracts bees to flowers, but it seems to actually hurt specific Hmm. flowers it it seems to actually be detrimental to the plant and i'll give you one more example that we we've noticed but this is kind of almost anecdotal that's fine but um you know i i love bees and i want to protect bees and i definitely don't want to give bees a bad name (laughs) but (laughs) one one thing that we did discover in in um when we're looking inside of bee nests is that um there's plant pathogens that can that seem to overwinter inside mm. of bee nests. So I think you're right that it's not just a one-way street that 
bees are not just picking up um bees are not just picking up microbes off of flowers but bees can also unfortunately transmit um some plant diseases sure and bee nests might be a place that some of these diseases have figured out like hey i'm i'm just going to hang out inside of this bee nest <laughs> and not do anything all winter yeah and when this bee emerges cuz most bees most bees are actually solitary so they they don't live in big huge colonies and it's just like an adult bee um emerges in the springtime forages for pollen and nectar builds a nest raises some some baby bees and then dies and those babies overwinter and the next spring they they come out of the ground and continue the cycle well it seems like some of these plant pathogens have maybe figured right. out that they can hang out with the bee and and make it into the into plants the next year by by just sticking around in the bee nest for sure the I mean, it makes sense. And again, this is nature, right? There's no like value judgment here. It's just the nature of the beast, right? And yeah, I mean, it makes sense too, because a microbe, any kind is probably a little less modal or at least less directed if it's just right. relying on cysts and blowing in the air. But here's a situation where you've got something that's targeting, you know, if it was there because it got it from this plant, it might go back to it next year kind of deal. So it also right. makes sense that there's like a vector, just a, a pure transportation element for these these organisms that can't they don't have a lot of agency in their own movement. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's some plant pathogens that that really exploit bees as vectors, like exploit the whole situation. They're fascinating. Um, the the anther smuts are mm. a type of fungus that takes over a flower, and instead of making pollen, the anthers become little fungal spore factories. Hmm. And so the bee thinks it's, you know, it flies into this flower thinking that it's going to be collecting pollen, but all it collects are, are these fungal spores. And the next flower it visits, it might leave those fungal spores to infect the, the next wow. plant. And there's even, it's it's gotten even weirder where there are some of these fungal pathogens then instead of making instead of taking over a flower they make a plant they they sort of manipulate a plant into making a brand new structure that looks like a flower but is solely there for the purpose of of spreading this disease around so it's in this case it's really tricking the pollinator into into vectoring those into into vectoring those spores around so (laughs) Yeah, evolution's pretty awesome. Yeah. You just have to admire it. We're again, no value judgment. It's just amazing. It's just That's amazing. so cool. And so when you think about this whole community, right? You've got microbes, which you know, mobile to an extent, but le- less agency, as we said. Plants very much stuck in place, you know, with some wiggle room, but bees can get around. Um, you know, when you and at least in the systems you're working in, how much geographic variation do you find from one population to the next in terms of like the microbial community that's present? Or is it one of those things that like it's good enough they kind of just get everywhere? Where where does it kind of sort out? Yeah, beautiful question. You, you have such great questions. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for for these. Of um course. we we've um we've investigated that um especially with with uh, the small carpenter bee. So the small carpenter bee is a fun bee to work with. There are bees in this genus Ceratina. And we we uh, kind of cheekily call them trash bees because they <laughs> they like sort of really disturbed environments. So oh, okay. they um you can find them in in you know kind of crummy human disrupted yeah yeah and they're and they're perfectly happy and so like around here elderberry trees if you find an mm. elderberry tree. Almost every elderberry tree has multiple nests of these little small carpenter bees in them. So they're easy to collect. You can get lots of them. Um, and we collected them with, along with a friend of ours at multiple different habitats. And, and we looked at both the fungal communities and the micro and the bacterial communities that we find in the pollen that these bees put inside their nests. And asking that exact question, like how much geographical variation is there? And what was really interesting was that the the bacterial communities didn't show a lot of geographical variation. Hmm. The same microbes are are present for the most part in all of the communities, no matter how far apart they are. 
But that wasn't true for the fungal communities. There was a much stronger, um, much stronger signal of geography in the fungal communities compared to the to the bacterial communities. So why that is? Wow. Well, the the fungi are not. When and where fungi are present inside of bee microbiomes is really an open question. And, mm. and because we, in these situations where we think there should be tons of yeast, sometimes there's no yeast. Mm. And in other situations, in other specific bee species, there's tons of, of fungi and there's not that much bacteria. So we still don't know what the drivers are of those of those associations. In small carpenter bees, it seems like the fungi are maybe kind of secondary players and not quite as important as the as the bacteria are. So maybe that's why they're more variable. Maybe there's more of an environmental signal and there's yeah. a little bit more filtering that goes on huh. with the bacterial communities. Um, but we don't have that sort of answer completely shorn up and and we we don't even really know what's why fungi seem important for s certain bee species where another bee species fungi are are almost completely absent and, wow. and um of very little importance yeah there's a there's still <laughs> yeah. a it, it's gonna keep us busy so. yeah yeah i was just gonna like how many lifetimes do you have? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Incredible. It's the fun part is like, you know, we're not going to run out of, I, I won't be one of those scientists. It's like, well, I think we figured that out. What, yeah. what do I need to work on next? Yeah. <laughs> totally. And again, it's this wonderful combination of, of truly advanced modern techniques, but oftentimes answering questions that, you know, botany was at 150 years ago. Like, it's almost like you're putting together a floristic of microbes. And uh, I don't know yeah. what you'd call that, but like, uh, it's it's this exploratory science asking big questions about evolution and adaptation. It's it's this wonderful sweet spot you found yourself in. And I, I just, that's why I love ecology so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I love that you, that you made that connection to the, um, to the floristic studies because in lots of ways it's it is a little bit of like fancy modern natural history you know yeah. and i, I kind of love i kind of i it's hard to be a natural historian purely in this day and age sure. but um i've tried to kind of find a way to stick <laughs> a lot of natural history right. into my work because i love you, you, to be honest i, I just love um, you know, being outside in nature and observing observing bees visiting flowers and trying to come up with with crazy questions just from sitting there and yeah. watching things happen, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you have to do it, right? There's no way to do this work without that part of it. So kudos, you found it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. The best day I, I sent a uh Instagram message or something like that recently to a friend of mine, like the, the worst day catching bees is much better than the best day in a faculty. Meeting. <laughs> oh, Tell me about it. Uh, <laughs> preach. <laughs> so, you know, what are you most excited about in the immediate future? I mean, you've got grad students, you've got a lab, you've got a lot of questions you can possibly ask, like, what is just immediate horizon sort of stuff you're excited about? Yeah. So, um, I'll come back, I guess, to the vulture bees because that's a uh, um, yeah. those bees that I mentioned that that evolved away to uh, away from feeding on pollen and nectar and back towards feeding on on meat. So when I when I talk to the general public about bees, the way I like to describe bees is that they're just wasps that went vegetarian. <laughs> um, and, and that's pretty much what they you know if you want to make wasps monophyletic, you have to put ants and bees into that mm. into that phylogeny into that group to make wasps monophyletic so they really are just kind of wasps that that became vegetarian but then you know whenever you make that sort of generalization there's there's going to be an exception and so these bees kind of backslid away from their vegetarian <laughs> lifestyle um in the nastiest way possible to <laughs> feed on, on on dead vertebrate carcasses mostly nice um and so I, when I first learned about these bees, I was, I, I was just like, I've got to study these bees because, yeah. you know, they've switched diets to like this, 
this thing that's full of nasty microbes and there has to be like really interesting stuff going on in the microbiomes of these bees. And so we, we have a, we have one paper out on those where we, we found, um, we did that study where we just kind of like compared their microbiome to, um, their closest ancestors that are strictly polynivorous. So that just go to flowers and some of their close relatives that go to flowers, but also aren't above visiting a carcass now and then for some for some juicy tidbits from those carcasses. But do both, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we call those guys facultative necrophages. But there are a few species that are obligate necrophages that never visit flowers. They don't visit a flower in their in their lifetime. Um, they just go to carcasses and they go to extra floral nectaries as well. So these um, to get sap from trees and things, but without visiting flowers whatsoever. Um, and we found that, you know, lo and behold, there are some really interesting microbes um, in these in these necrophages. Some of them are kind of are, are things that you wouldn't be super shocked by, like um, Carnomonas right there in its name, like carne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that's a meat associate and that thing shows up in these in these obligate necrophages and not in the others but there's also you know there's lots of acid loving bacteria mm. in almost all of these bee associated microbiomes but these bees have different acid loving bacteria than some of their close relatives huh. um and fascinatingly enough, that's true. We found that that's true for a, a lot of just straight up necrophages, not insect necrophages, but like real vultures, like the bird vultures and mm. hyenas and these other animals that feed on these like pretty nasty, I, I, you know, carcasses get really gross, yeah. especially in the tropics yeah. really quickly. Um, and so if you're going to feed on that, you have to have something to protect you from all of those other bacteria that are competing with you for, for this nasty food. And it, it, it seems that insects and vertebrates both have sort of converged on having these acidophilic bacteria as part of their gut microbiome to help them sort of deal with this really, really nasty food source. And so we're, we're, we're following up some work on that this this winter i i only get to go for a little bit but um i'm i'm gonna meet my friend laura laura figueroa is my main collaborator on the vulture bee work and and laura and another friend of ours are gonna meet up in costa rica to um to collect some actually we're not bringing back samples we're gonna do some more just kind of ecological studies nice. this winter with the with the vulture bees but we're we're in the process of sort of gathering some more data to to write a grant because all of us are they're just such cool bees and um you know costa rica is uh it's pretty nice work to, yeah <laughs> to do field work <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in costa rica so um so yeah, that's sort of what I'm most excited about because I um or I'm excited about about all of it to be honest. Sure. But, um, but I, I get really the, the vulture bees are just it's just a, if you can't you probably have already figured out that I like studying like really weird things. <laughs> yeah. Cool. <laughs> vulture bees are about as weird as it gets for yeah for bees. <laughs> so news to me. I mean. <sighs> Nature is a wild place and you've found a cool corner of it. <laughs> That's it's awesome. It's a really wild place. It's pretty gross work. Like we, yeah, we, yeah, we, sure. We put little pieces of chicken as baits in the, mm. in the forest to, to catch these bees or to observe these bees. But this time we're, we're, we're going to be working with a, a friend who is, who does a lot of like super high resolution videography oh, kind of studies. And excellent. so we're, we're going to use that to do some, some really fun sort of visitation studies and um for these, for, for these bees. So I'm really, really looking forward to that though. We'll get nice. lots of video too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good content. That's awesome. <laughs> Dr. McFrederick, this is incredible. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this. If people want to find out more about this work and anything that's going to be coming out of your lab in the not too distant future, where do they go looking? Yeah. So melatology, M-E-L-I-T-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot U-C-R dot E-D-U is our, that's our, um, that's our website. 
So if you just type in that, it'll take you directly to our website. I keep that pretty, I update it a couple of times a year. So um, I'm not like, it's not like Instagram, but you, you, um, people can also find us on Instagram. And I put, I I try to put some, I'm not like a um, content creator. I would say, but I try to put stuff on Instagram and that's melatology.lab at Instagram. Um, That's our hashtag on, on Instagram, but there's also a link to that Instagram on our website. So. Perfect. And I will spare everyone the trouble of trying to remember that by putting links on my website so that they can go right there and find it for you. Beautiful. Thank you. It's been a, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Matt. You're, um, you are very, very fun to, to talk to <laughs> and you. you had really great questions. The so pleasure's all mine and I'm only as good as the guests I have on. So thank you again for taking time to talk with us about this. It's been enlightening and uh, we need to clone you and everyone that you work with to keep just going, keep going. Cause these are amazing questions with big, big implications in a lot of ways. So again, thank you for your time. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Hang in there. Thank you, Matt. All right. Phenomenal and fascinating stuff. How amazing is our world? For those of you looking to make your mark in science, these are the avenues you can go. And it's not the only one, of course, but it is a really cool one. And I thank Dr. McFrederick for taking time out of his busy schedule to tell us all about the work he and his collaborators are doing. As always, please check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, because that's where I put links to all of the stuff we discussed in this episode, and of course, for every episode. While you're over there, look at all of the great ways you can help support the show, because the show doesn't exist without support. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can pick up some of our customizable merch. We also have stickers for sale, and I have a book. But one of the best ways to support Indefensive Plants is by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. For a little financial contribution each month, you can really go the extra mile and help keep the show up and running. Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Heidi, who signed up at the producer credit level. So Heidi is getting all of the kickbacks you can possibly get from our Patreon and as I mentioned, giving the show a future. So thank you, Heidi. And of course, thank you to all my patrons. I couldn't be doing this without them. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone. <laughs>